This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. All right, GE definitely trying to turn itself around. You know, it's still a $113 billion market cap company, still trading lower this year, down about 25%, thanks in part to a nearly 5% decline today. This despite the company beating profit estimates in its latest quarterly update. Let's get an update on that turnaround at GE. Rick Clough is with us, industrials reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in New York. And also back with us, Ivan Feinseth. He's managing director, chief investment officer at Tigris Financial Partners on the phone in New York. Rick, let's start with you. Go through the important metrics of the quarter. We've had a big chunk of the day to look at it. Um, not a great quarter? Okay quarter? Should have been a better quarter? What? You know, it's it was an okay quarter overall, I'd say. Um, it, it's it's a little funny when you look at the, what the stock is doing today. Yeah. It's it's way down, and, and you might think that there were some really nasty surprises, but there really weren't a whole lot of surprises. I think this is sort of an accumulation of uh, of a number of small negatives. Uh, you know, they they said that their industrial free cash flow this year is going to be about six billion dollars, which is the low end of the range they had given previously. And you saw that in a number of business units where they didn't necessarily guide down. But they sort of suggested that things are, are kind of uh, tracking toward the low end of what they were hoping. So anybody looking for a surprise didn't get it. Um, stock, as I mentioned, down 24%. Ivan, come on in on this. You've got a neutral rating on the stock. Anything here to make you want to adjust that rating or your projections for GE? No, I still, still think it's going to take some time yeah. uh, for the company to start to get a positive return on capital and get some positive growth trends in uh, these three core businesses and the overall company. How patient, though, do investors need to be? Stock was down 45% last year. In 2016, Ivan, we got about a 1% gain. Uh, You know, you talk to investors in GE and they're like, we've been patient for a long time. Um, Are they on the right path to a company, to 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 a sustainable kind of growth trajectory? Well, the plan under the reorganization that they announced last November was to focus on what they believe are the core growth businesses, which are aviation, healthcare, and power generation. Mm -hmm. The aviation side, they are a market leader in jet engines. And the, uh, you know, Boeing cannot build planes fast enough. In fact, all all of the airplane manufacturers cannot build planes fast enough to meet demand. Right. So that should be doing well. The other issues are in the other two companies that will still, the other two divisions that will still take time to turn around. But, you know, patient, investors, in my view, really don't have to be patient. The market is making new all-time, you know, close to making new all-time highs, mm-hmm. and recovering from a sell-off in February and March, and there are other stocks to own, and that's the issue. Right. Uh, this is, in my view, going to go sideways at best for some time, and it's going to be a continual source of funds for investors to put into other companies and, and that are, in my view, going to do better, and that's the biggest problem. It's the opportunity cost. Of sitting in GE. That's a great point, right? You got to look at it in comparison to maybe either other industrials, if you will, or just the whole equity universe that's out there. Uh, Rick, when you go through um, the numbers in the balance sheet, what are the things that uh, you also find interesting on this company right now? 
Um, you know, I, I think that, um, um, you know, power is really one of the, the, the big uh, watch points. Um, everybody knows that the, the market is, is down, and, and that really is the drag on, on GE right now. Um, it was down quite a bit in the quarter, and, and I think that um, really investors are, are wondering when we're going to get to the bottom, um, and, and not just the bottom for the market, but also um, when we're going to get to a point where we're not finding out that it's it's hurting GE in new ways. Um, you know, that's what they really pointed to when they cut their um, uh, or guided to the low end of their um, free cash flow um, for the year is 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 power, and, and mm-hmm. they're going to ship fewer gas turbines than than maybe they had thought, and it it just won't really go away. Hey, Ivan, for those three core businesses, aviation, healthcare, and power generation, are you happy with the existing portfolio that GE has? Yes, I, I think that it was those were the right choices. However, as I start to say, uh, you look at their two biggest competitors, Honeywell, mm-hmm. which is up nicely for the year, mm-hmm. and uh, United Technologies, which is also up for the year, and both Honeywell reported phenomenal results today. So the issue is that there are other industrial companies that are doing much better. Um. I'm curious, too, if um, – and I guess the reason I was asking about the, the portfolios, I guess what I was curious about, too, Ivan, is whether or not there are any companies that they can add to those three businesses that would make it even better for the company. Um, I, I don't have off the top of my head specific acquisitions they could make, but I'm sure they are trying to figure out some type of M&A strategy for those three businesses that would increase their value. Hey, Rick, I'm also curious, too, that, you know, we're, <laughs> we've had a long market cycle. Everyone says I hear a lot more people talking about momentum, potentially not for necessarily a recession next year, but the year after. I mean, the clock kind of ticking for all of this to start getting going for GE because, you know, some would say we're in a pretty decent environment. Well, yeah, and and that's been one of the the really um, uh, surprising things with GE's decline is that it's been happening in in a generally good environment. I mean, right. now to be fair, some of their businesses are not um, in great markets right now, but uh, but you know you would think that they would want to get this put together soon. Uh, John Flannery, the CEO, mm-hmm. has said that uh, you know now that he's um, you know announced what he wants the portfolio to look like, now it becomes a story about execution and so um oh the, it, ceos it, it, always say that <laughs> well in and in this case I, it really does become about that it, it not to say that they they can execute but really they need to prove that they can in order to get investors back on board all right it continues to be an interesting story but as we said ge shares down a little bit today rick clough thank you so much industrials reporter at bloomberg news appreciate it bloomberg 1130 studio here in new york and then on the phone in new york great to talk again with ivan feinsepp managing director chief investment officer at Tigris Financial Partners. As we mentioned, he's got a neutral recommendation uh, on GE. GE shares just down about 3.5%. Bloomberg Markets on Bloomberg Radio. So, looks like food companies are hungry to do some more deals. Billions of dollars in deals already on the books in the food world and ready to nibble on some more. Let's get into this story with Craig Giamona. He's consumer reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Happy Friday. You too. Happy Friday. So, 
First of all, set the scene. 2017, we had a bunch of deals. We did. $110 billion worth, including you know something like $56 billion in the U.S., which was double the previous year's total. So Busy year. Very busy year. There's been a ton of activity in the food space, and it's really no secret why. These companies are really struggling to find growth. You know, We know that there's been upstart brands. Consumers have kind of gravitated towards the new kid on the block and moved away from the traditional favors that are made by the big, gigantic companies. And so they've looked to M&A. To, to drive some growth, to buy some growth, basically. So, you know, I think at Kraft Heinz, and you write about this a lot in your story, this has been a company that is often doing acquisitions, yep. right? But they've been quiet as of late. They have. So Kraft Heinz, you know, a lot of people think it's central to their strategy to buy something else. 2013, 3G Capital, the private equity firm, gets with Warren Buffett, Berkshire Hathaway. They buy Heinz. They take it private. Within 18 months, they have industry-leading profit margins. Two years after that, they buy Kraft in 2015. They combine the companies. They spend about 18 months, two years cutting. The profit margins have gone way up. Then in February 2017, Kraft Heinz tries to buy Unilever, $143 billion deal. <laughs> right. Unilever, <laughs> that, was my, that was my break sound. <laughs> right, exactly. The, Unilever basically pumped the brakes. The CEO, Paul Pullman, said, no, I don't want to get in bed with these guys. They're going to destroy everything that I created. Yeah. And so now here we are, more than a year later, a year and a half later, and Kraft still hasn't done anything. And they can't, they're having a really hard time finding growth with their brands. Oscar Mayer, Deli Meats, you know, uh, Maxwell House Coffee. There's, these are things that are kind of out of step with the modern consumer. Go back to what Kraft Heinz has done, Craig. So when you say their profit mar- mar- they did cuts and their profit margins yep. improved. So was it just about not that they were selling more and selling more product of what people wanted, but just that they did cost cutting? Correct. Zero-based budgeting is their thing. Zero-based budgeting has been allowed for a long time, but these guys really made it popular. They come in, they close factories, they fire thousands of people, and the profit margins go way up, and the stock price goes up too. But when you go to like a Walmart, where I feel like America shops in many ways, I mean, what are they selling more of? Is it the organic food, or is it the chips in the chip aisle? They're selling plenty of chips, but you know, look, we, we've talked about Whole Foods over the mm-hmm. years. The reason why Whole Foods got into trouble is because Walmart started selling organic stuff. There's plenty of organic stuff at Walmart. Right. You know, consumers are still love their Doritos, their Cheetos. They're still going to buy Heinz ketchup, but how much ketchup can we eat? Like, There's not a ton of growth in Heinz ketchup. Right. And that's what Heinz is stuck with, a portfolio of brands that are a little bit tired, have seen their best days. And so those guys are just sort of looming over the food world. Buffett has this giant stack of cash, and it's kind of yeah. like, what are they going to do? But you know, it's interesting. Like You talk about Heinz ketchup. I mean, this is what? A, a multi-billion dollar brand. I'm it sure. And it throws off a good amount of cash. I mean, yeah. this business is not distressed. They're not in any kind of trouble per se. Right. But, you know, the stock price is down 35% since that Unilever deal fell apart. That's $40 billion in market value. Kraft Heinz used to trade with kind of like the 3G premium, as people called it, which was that mm-hmm. that it didn't trade like a food company. But 18 months after Unilever falls apart, now it looks like any old food company because right. people are wondering where the growth is coming so from. So what might Heinz Kraft do? You know, over the years, the list of targets has really run the gamut. So I think when Unilever came along, that wasn't really a name that a lot of people had looked at. People had really thought about Campbell, General Mm -hmm. Mills, Kellogg, maybe Mondelez, which would get the companies that split back together. Right. But when Unilever came along, people said, oh, interesting. Maybe Kraft wants international exposure. Maybe they want exposure to household products outside of packaged food. Unilever is a food company, but they also have Dove and Axe Body Spray and things like that. So Unilever kind of opened people's eyes. Maybe Colgate is interesting to them all of a sudden. It has a big emerging emerging markets business. You know, right now Campbell is thought to be in play. There's been some reporting. You know, uh, Campbell's CEO abruptly retired recently. The company's kind of seen as being in chaos. Yeah, it's controlled by this Dorrance family, descendants of the founder. So it's kind of like maybe they come for Campbell. 
you know, it's very, very hard to say. But the feeling is that sooner rather than later, Kraft Heinz has to do something. I thought it was interesting, too, in your story that you talked about Pepsi and Coke right. also looking to diversify. We know the stories about sugary drinks mm-hmm. and so on and so forth, um, but they are certainly – Coke is still largely – a sugary drink company. They are. And actually, Coke's done okay. You know, they've done better of late. Diet Coke doing pretty well. They've had some growth there. Pepsi's really the interesting one. This idea has been around for a while. The idea yeah. that they've got Frito-Lay, which is a powerhouse. People like salty snacks. People, Consumers have turned against sugar, but salty snacks are getting a pass now for whatever reason. Right. So there's been a feeling over the years, Nelson Peltz used to, to argue about mm-hmm. this, that they should split off the beverage unit and kind of combine the snacks with somebody else. You know, the CEO of Pepsi, Indra, knew he said the other day basically that this wasn't going to happen. You know, she kind of pushed back against that. But who knows? I mean, Mondelez is kind of out there. I mean, would would Frito want to split off and then buy Mondelez to make a salty, sweet snacking powerhouse? That's one of the ideas. Right. You know, the other thing with Coke and Pepsi is that they're gigantic companies. I mean, if Buffett's involved, I guess you could get there. I mean, the market cap on Coke is like $190 billion, So right. that's a huge target. In the meantime, I always think about the other side of this, all those upstarts, right? We know that there's tons of money out there able to support your, and, and kind of start up upstart companies. I mean, those companies are going to be sought after. They are. And one of the interesting thing that's happened over the last couple of years. It used to be that you know a company would start out in a garage in Boulder or something, get into Whole Foods, then Kroger notices. And like once they got to about $100 million in sales, big food would kind of come knocking. Because it's one thing, you can go from zero to 100 on your own, but to go from 100 to 500 and 500 to a billion, the feeling was you needed to plug into somebody's national distribution network. Right. What's happened lately, because of all the lack of growth, is that they've come down the food chain. They're buying companies with $10 million in sales, $15 million in sales. So these smaller and smaller companies are getting bought for big time multiples. I mean, Crave Jerky, which Hershey bought to move away, you know, because they have yeah. a sugar problem. Right. I mean, that company, you know, was, was tiny when it got purchased. So more and more of those little guys are being looked at. Bottom line, get ready for some more deals in this space. It seems that way, yes. That'll be interesting, and certainly what it does to the market, market momentum. Craig, thank you. Thank you. Have a great weekend, Craig Giamona, consumer reporter at Bloomberg News in our eleven three zero studio. I've seen the needle and the damage done. A little part of it. That's what we want to get into. Damage done. Trade tariffs continuing to be front and center today. President Trump saying this morning he's ready to go with tariffs on about half a trillion dollars worth of Chinese imports. Trade and the overall impact of President Trump's policies short blip or damage for years to come on our world order. Bloomberg Businessweek economics editor Peter Coy looked into just that. He wrote the opening remarks and cover story for this week's Bloomberg Businessweek. He joins us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. What a timely cover story. Mm. You Tell us a little bit about what you looked into um, and what you found out or conclusions you made. Yeah, well, it does look like the effects are probably going to be somewhat lasting. I don't know forever, but you have to think, look around what's happening. Other countries are choosing to go their own way without the U.S. They're forming free trade agreements without the U.S. An example is the Trans-Pacific Partnership that Trump withdrew from as one of his first acts in office. The other 11 countries are going ahead with that. The European Union and Japan just signed a free trade deal this past week. Uh, European Union and China just issued a communique showing that they're trying to warm relations, trying to mm-hmm. get rid of some of the differences between them. At the same time, you show public opinion polls Show a big drop from 2016 to 2017 in the share of people around the world expressing faith in American leadership. Now, they're not saying 
that's not about Trump. That's about the United States. People don't always make that distinction between the country and the president for good reason. This is a democracy. I mean, if we look, if the United States elected Donald Trump, it kind of says something about the U.S. How though quickly could that opinion change? And let's say, let's just play this out in a couple different ways. What if ultimately this trade war that's going on, let's say between U.S. and China, that ultimately that leads to a better trade? You know, agreement, a bilateral agreement between the United States and China. Right. And that is clearly the goal. And it can happen. I mean, obviously, that's the best possible outcome is that the U.S. makes threats and then China gives in and uh, the U.S. wins. Right. That's clearly what Trump is looking for. What's happening so far is that China is not backing down and if you know anything about Chinese history, you know that they uh, have centuries of humiliation at the hands of foreign uh, occupiers like Japan and uh, Britain and, to to lesser degree, uh, other powers. So there, uh, Xi Jinping has made a commitment that he's trying to make China great again. And for him, it would be a major loss of face to just say, OK, we give in, Donald Trump wins. I don't see that happening. What's interesting, too, and you write about, you know, what this means for the business environment, right? And I think about United States businesses, U.S. businesses. Um, You know, the Trump administration has been seen as being, as you point this out in 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 the opening remarks in Business Week, favorable in terms of tax policy, right? Right. But at this point— And regulation is another key thing, right, where the business roundtable, for example— I quoted Josh Bolton, who's mm-hmm. the head of the Business Roundtable, which represents the CEOs of some of the largest companies in America. They had been soft-peddling their criticism of Trump because they're so happy with him on taxes and deregulation. And they kind of hoped he would come around on trade. That was always a sticking point. He's clearly not coming around on trade. And so they are kind of being a lot more open and expressing their disappointment, sharp disappointment with where we're headed. And that uncertainty can certainly lead to, and this is something we're trying to figure out with earnings, whether or not companies are holding back on capital expenditures, right? Maybe they hold back and maybe they don't invest in that factory or what have you. Right, because if you look at the direct effects, first of all, the tariffs to date are quite small, affecting only a small portion of GDP. And when economists run it through their models, they show extremely small effects, maybe less than a tenth of a percent of uh, GDP growth. Um, but if you start to factor in the uncertainty, as you mentioned, and capital spending plans change, well, capital spending is the big swing factor that has more to do with growth and recession than anything else. All bets are up. S- similarly, if there's a big wealth effect, stock market takes a hit. And we quote Larry Fink from BlackRock saying that he can imagine, he spoke to Bloomberg TV, mm-hmm. that a 15% 10 to 15%, um, I'm sorry, $200 billion increase in uh, tariffs, products subject to tariffs by the U.S. against China could, assuming retaliation, could knock down the stock market by 10 to 15%. That's a real impact. Yeah. And that sticks right. Well, you know, what about the, if it's a f- one four year term that we get with President Trump, does that make a difference in terms of whether or not these policies well, some are going to have Some of the people I list- talked to said, yeah, I mean, that uh, it's, if uh, he's got two, two and a half years to go versus if he has six and a half years to go, it makes a big difference in terms of how uh, entrenched the new policies become. I, I I kind of put it two ways. I said, like, how does the international community get affected by a trade war? One is uh, 
damage to the trust that CEOs, world leaders, and ordinary mm-hmm. uh, people of the world have towards each other. Um, once damaged, it's that's hard to get back. That's one lasting effect. The other is uh, related is the idea of nationalism, which preceded Trump, and it's right. a worldwide phenomenon. But Trump and a handful of other leaders around the nation, uh, I'm sorry, around the world, are sort of both harnessing and exacerbating nationalism. And that's a force that tends to drive countries apart and keep them apart. Peter, just got about 30 seconds, 40 seconds left here. Is it fair to point the finger at Trump? Because some will say, to be fair, some of these issues with trade needed to be looked at maybe a few years For ago. For sure. And, you know, he's exactly right to point out uh, the w- different ways in which China in particular, I would pick them out, um, have sort of taken advantage of the freedoms of the World Trade Organization and so on. The question is, what's the solution? And I think that's where people have a problem. Not not, the, not that he isn't point-pointing, but yeah, there's a real solution's not coming together. Another thoughtful piece and certainly something uh, everybody should read. Peter, thank you. Thank you. Peter Coy, Economics Editor at Bloomberg Business Week. It is the cover story of Bloomberg Business Week, and you can pick up the magazine, go to the website, or tune in to Bloomberg Business Week with myself and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg TV and radio throughout the weekend. This is Bloomberg Radio. You suddenly realize that this could be the start of something big. So Inside Venture Partners is a global venture capital and private equity firm that says it's investing in high-growth technology and software companies that are really driving transformative change in their industries. And those investments have included uh, Hootsuite, Fanatics, Zumba Group, and Alibaba. Insight just closing a fund after raising $6.3 billion to invest in some new companies. Insight, by the way, with a total of over $24 billion in assets under management. Joining us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio, Hilary Gosher, Managing Director at the New York-based Insight Venture Partners. Welcome. Thank you. Nice to- Thanks for having me. <laughs> nice to have you. Um, I said to you before we got going, I always love talking to you, uh, folks like you because you get an idea of kind of where the investment money is going, what might be some of the trends that we'll be focusing on in years to come. What kind of new investments have you been making? So I think the interesting thing that we're seeing is that because we play in both venture capital and private equity, yeah. the common f- uh, factor is it's all growth and it's all software. But, you know, we'll put a $10 million investment to work and we'll put a 100 or a $200 million investment to work. So we're seeing stuff across the spectrum. And so on the larger end of stuff, we're seeing some companies that have been around, you know, five, 10 years. They have real revenue, real traction, real large enterprise customers. And that's some of the stuff that, you know, was, was kind of hot in the VC space five, seven years ago. So right. there's a lot of big data. Um, there's a lot of um, uh, SaaS-based products around workflow management management and improving efficiencies. But then on the VC side, by contrast, you're seeing a lot of the promise of AI starting to come to fruition. Yeah. A lot of the talk around ML that's starting to come to fruition. Machine so, learning, right? Machine learning, exactly. So those things were kind of really hot in the seed stage about three, four years ago. Now we're starting to see really decent businesses emerging uh, in the VC world. And probably five years from now, private equity will be doing them. Hillary, it's so cool when you talk about that. We've been doing a lot of stuff on AI and machine learning um, here at Bloomberg. Um, Is it a thing that is – some of it's already being used, like we talked about in the medical field. uh, We're already seeing it. Um, But does it start to really hit the world, what, in five years from now or sooner than that or later than that? You know, I think if you take a look at something like cybersecurity, yeah. there's so many dollars going into cyber, and we invested in a company called Darktrace that has AI uh, for for um, uh, for cyber. So in other words, uh, as the bad actors are hitting your enterprise or coming in, the machine is learning what, and, and you know, it's sort of like herd immunity. Uh, since every 
everybody's on the same network. Um, if one organization gets immunity, we automatically give immunity to everybody because the AI is learning. Right. So that's really a fantastic thing about how the software works, which is the more organizations that buy the software and hook into the network, the more they're all protected. Um, but you know, those kind of, of businesses um, are already using AI. So I think cyber and a couple of the other um, uh, parts of the business have already started to see applications of AI, and we're starting to see it emerging in healthcare. But there are parts of some industries where you know it's probably a couple of years before you see an application that really makes sense. Um, what other areas of technology in terms of software? Because you're all about software, correct? We only invest in software, yeah. Um, where, what are there any other kind of like kind of new software trends that you're seeing as well? Well, you know. Software, as we you've been saying, first software eats the world, you know. Then you know, mo- mobile eats the world. Well, it's really algorithms eat the world now. So it is really all about you know how we're applying um, some of these new techniques around machine learning, natural language processing, AI to business problems and consumer problems. Uh, so you know, in the home, for example, with Google Home and with Amazon, yeah. you're going to see many more applications around machine learning and how to make um, uh, pe- how the machines are going to anticipate your every need in the home. That to me is wrapping up much faster than everybody anticipated and me who's kind of like a and my husband a privacy nut like we just you know all of a sudden are like oh yeah we'll have google home because it's going to shut off our lights and turn on like stupid little things but we really are embracing it much quicker than i think everybody thought yeah i think consumers are embracing it because it drives convenience yeah and likewise that same efficiency is happening in the enterprise or the business world as well so in spite of the kind of skepticism around it the obvious uh, benefits around efficiency and productivity led people to adopt. You mentioned cybersecurity, and we talk, we've we been talking about this for years and the importance of it and so on and so forth. But, you know, it's interesting. We had a guest on earlier this week and just talked about, you know, we're really starting to gain traction and understanding about sovereign states kind of tapping into things around the world. The software that you're seeing, as you say, AI algorithms, machine learning, is it getting smarter and better in terms of protecting different systems? And institutions? I think it's a little both. So I think as the software gets smarter and better and learns, so the nefarious people do as well. So it's a race, you know, we're never going to catch up. And in a way, that's great for the businesses because there's always somebody who's going to need their software. Right. Um, The companies that you're investing in that have been around for a while, uh, maybe the longer term investments, is it your preference to keep things private for longer that you don't feel the pressure to take things public? That like we might maybe did in the past, just got about 40 seconds left. Well, the, the, the public markets are open right now. So for those businesses who can tap into the public markets, I think they really want to yeah. uh, access the public markets. Um, the valuations are typically higher. You can do that if you have a much larger kind of horizontal market opportunity, which is global. So companies like Pluralsight and Smartsheet that went public earlier this year, they're just enormous market opportunities. For those companies, it's sort of a no-brainer to go after the public markets. You know, other companies are, are much better um, off in private equity owner hands or bought by strategic. So it's no pressure to keep it. I mean, you, it's okay to keep it keep it private for yeah, a while because there's, there's money out there. Yeah, I think there's various different exit options. And, you know, companies are able to repatriate capital because of the tax breaks. Right. Strategics will be buyers. Interesting stuff. Um, come back, I hope. Thank you. Yeah. Hilary Gosher, uh, Managing Director at Inside Venture Partners based in New York in our Bloomberg 1130 studio on this Friday. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is...
is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Brent Schutte is Chief Investment Strategist at Northwestern Mutual Wealth Management, joining us on the phone from Milwaukee. So, Brent, uh, you say, I'm looking at your research note, that we just wrapped up an odd quarter. How about <laughs> kind of an odd week, an odd month, an odd year? Um, but tell me a little bit more about uh, this quarter. Yeah, I think last quarter was one that was kind of interrupted. So you were kind of going along a normal business cycle. Asset classes that should be outperforming at that time were doing well. And then we had the trade and tariff concerns interjected into the market, which caused things like small caps to outperform, emerging markets to underperform, uh, the Treasury market to flatten or the curve to flatten. Uh, and at the end of the day, you know, I still believe that the cycle eventually takes over and the economic fundamentals win through. And that means we still have time to go. And for me, that means also that some of those asset classes that have been, har- have been harmed, as potentially the trade and tariff concerns um, eventually, hopefully die down, those will be the asset classes that will provide value in the future. Well, it's interesting, too. And we, we have a story by our Sarah Ponsek and Luke Kawa uh, talking about industrials. I kind of referenced it before we got going and just said it said about one fourth of industrial companies in the S&P have reported second quarter results. All 18 have beaten on the bottom line. Additionally, every firm but one came in with better than expected numbers on the top line. Um, you know, so I guess at this point, we're trying to assess certainly listening to what uh, the executives and CEOs have to say on the earnings calls, whether or not this trade and heightened trade tension, trade war environment is starting to affect their decisions and, and to affect their businesses. I don't know that we're seeing much of that as of yet. No, we aren't. It's affected the market more than it's affected the economy so far. Yeah. I guess the big question is, does it eventually leak into the economy? And right now, if you look at the data that we've had come out, the, the answer would be no. Um, earnings in general, uh, and this is obviously second quarter that are coming out, you mentioned industrials being strong, but 94% of companies that have reported so far, now there's only 86 of the 500 in the S&P 500, but 94% have beat estimates by about, I believe, uh, 4.8% in aggregate. And they've done it not just on the bottom line, as you mentioned, but also on the top line, mm-hmm. which tells me that the economy is doing very well because top line growth is more correlated to what happens in the economy. How, how do you take the president's tweets into account when it comes to trying to figure out what, what's going to be happening to the financial markets and what it means for an investment climate? I think you have to look through them to a certain degree because they are still pretty uncertain. Um, you know, the one thing that is most telling, I think, in the comments that the president had, um, I believe, this morning, was was he talked a lot about um, the fact that because the stock market had been strong, that it was allowing him to press his case um, on the trade. And so to me, that mm-hmm. comes back to my, my belief that this is still very much negotiation. And if you think about um, one of the reasons why he may have chose to stir the pot this week is because the um, market's been strong for the past uh, few weeks. But in general, it tells me that this president is still very much concerned with what happens in the stock market and that he very much judges his success or failure based upon what happens in the market. And I guess bottom line is I do believe that if the market were to start falling and these effects starting to filter through, that there's a high probability that some of this would get pulled back. Interesting. Um, Well, okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, no, that's, no. I was just going to say, so that, that's kind of um, one way that I think you have to look at it. And you have to really judge the mm-hmm. fundamentals right now. And the fundamentals, the U.S. economy is strong. And as I mentioned, corporate earnings are doing quite well. So does that mean you want to commit new money to U.S. assets or U.S.-based assets? Or are you looking elsewhere? Well, obviously, we run broad, diversified portfolios yeah. here. So we have a mixture of different assets. But we still do like the international markets a bit more than the U.S. 
Um, and that focus in, in our, a lot of our portfolios that we do dynamic asset allocation has shifted more to emerging markets, which is somewhat of a contrarian call. They've been the asset class that last quarter was under pressure because of, I think, the trade concerns. But something we haven't really talked about yet, which is the Federal Reserve, um, there was concerns about them raising rates faster, which I think we've got some comments on today. And I believe the Fed is still going to be very much easy. Uh, historically, when that actually happens, those two things collide. Emerging markets do sell off some because the playbook says for traders to actually sell them. I guess to keep it really short and simple, we still believe economic growth continues both here and abroad, and that valuations in emerging markets are still attractive. And when those two things meet, we think that means that emerging markets are attractive for people who have a time horizon longer than the next few months. Do you guys back at uh, Northwestern, um, are you guys talking about a recession in anytime soon? No. So I guess I keep coming back to this point. There are three things that have happened before every recession, at least in the prior 30 years, which is kind of the modern day Fed post Paul Volcker. Um, one, the U.S. economy runs out of slack. Two, inflation rises. And three, the Fed hikes rates aggressively because the modern day Fed, at least the one that we have had, believed that if you moderated the boom, the bust wouldn't be so big. Mm-hmm. And so while we are running out of slack, inflation has risen to 2%. But I think the most important thing, and even without the president's tweets this morning, I do believe societally that the Federal Reserve believes that inflation is no longer the boogeyman, that the boogeyman is deflation and um, economic recessions. And so I take them at their word that they will let this economy run hot. And to me, that means we still have at least a couple years left in the economic cycle. Um, And given where the economic momentum is right now, um, you know, the U.S. economy doesn't move fast, but once it gets set in motion, it takes a big force to stop it. I still think we have a couple of years left in the economic cycle, which bring it back to what I do for a living. Yeah. One of the simplest things is that if the economy is higher next year and we're on this phone line again, right. I believe there's a high probability the market will be higher. Interesting. All right. Good stuff. Uh, Brent, thank you. Brent Schutte, Chief Investment Strategist at Northwestern Mutual Wealth Management. Uh, Brent joining us on the phone from Milwaukee. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.